Hello, and welcome to The Week at Work. I'm your host, David Gibney, and this is episode two. I'm joined, as usual, by my co-hosts, Stefano Nulon and Kieran Campbell. But this week, we have a very special guest. We have Lynn Boylan, or as I should refer to her now, Senator Lynn Boylan, uh, former Dublin MEP uh, for Sinn Féin, but now obviously in the Senate. Um, what we're going to do this week is we're going to review the front pages of the newspapers first, and then we're going to talk around some of the other stories that we find in this week's newspapers, um, and along with some of the other stories that happens during the week. Uh, at the end, we might discuss a little bit about media diversity in Ireland, but I'll kick off straight away and I'll go to Lynn. Uh, welcome to the show. And Lynn, if you can tell us what you've been looking at in the front pages of Sunday's newspapers. In the front pages? Oh God, well I suppose, look, there's front pages of the newspapers. You're catching me off guard now, Dave. I have to I'm pretty sure you haven't missed what's uh, on the front page of the Sunday Independent because it appears that Sinn Féin and the Sunday Independent now have a love-in. It's fantastic. Yeah, um, well look, I, I've, I've read the piece and I suppose it's, look, it's typical of, of Hugh O'Connell, it's his style. Um, you know, and I think what we're trying to do is obviously look the Sindo is now owned by a different company and have they changed their approach to the party but uh, reading that piece today I don't think anybody would uh, come to that conclusion it's um, it's very typical Hugh O'Connell and his approach to Sinn Féin yeah, and disappointing really it's you know it's it's tired and disappointing for those who haven't seen it, the front page reads as it has a almost a half-page picture of Mary Lou Macdonald, um, and it's about a big interview that she's done, which the editorial actually explains why they did this interview with Mary Lou Macdonald, um, saying that it's a, a new leader, and they've done interviews with the other leaders. This one's bigger because they have bigger questions to ask of Sinn Féin, but the headline, Sinn Féin, the IRA, and me. Mm. I read it, Dave, and... Um I would agree with Lynn. Um, it's very difficult to understand um, how long this is going to go on for. Um, and I think Irish politics is in a very dangerous position. Like if you were to look at Irish history and the politics of Irish history, it is laced and riddled with a, a sort of military background and context. And, and as a very accomplished leader, I remember watching her at, I think it was at a right to change forum that the, the unions organized her and how she handled the public um, and the time that she would have. And she was actually, in my view, a breath of fresh air. Now, I'm no, by no means, and maybe Lynn doesn't want to hear this, um, a Sinn Féin supporter. Um, I would welcome the fact that Sinn Féin are a growing party and they would, you know, they would appear to be radical and progressive in terms of their politics, which can only be but welcomed. But certainly in this article, um, you couldn't but appreciate um, and the annoyance and the, of Hugh O'Connell and how he sort of wrote the article, how he carried out the interview. There was, it wasn't until well into the whole interview that we actually get down to actually talking about politics. And it was just... It was very cosmetic, it was flippant, it was dismissive. Um, and I just really don't understand what the Irish media, um, why they're not mature enough just to accept the fact that Sinn Féin have come in from the cold and they, they should be welcomed as a party with policy position for that particular 
reason and not for their past. And until such times as we drop this nonsense, um, we're not going to move on. And look, the two main parties that are now talking about, well, they're not the main parties, let's be honest with you, but the two parties that are talking about government formation, they have history too. You know, let's look at the Irish Civil War and the atrocities that was carried out there. And that's their background to where they came from. And I, and if we were to look at the first doll, when they entered the first doll, they were all coming in with guns under their coats um, because they thought the Civil War was just going to break out any moment. So I really just don't get this anymore. And, I'm, and what really depresses me, you have people having these interviews um, with the likes of Mary Lou MacDonald and others, and they didn't live through the troubles in the North. Um, and like Mary Lou talks about the hunger strike in 1981, and I, I remember that. I don't know, was Stevie, were you in, living in the North then? I was, yeah, but I mean, the thing about the reaction to Sinn Féin in the South is watching from a Northern perspective, it's always just hilarious, the, 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 mm. the, the way they tie themselves up in knots when you're living in the North, and um, they've never got over the fact that Sinn Féin broke out of the six counties and became a proper all-island established party. They still haven't got over that, and it's, uh, it's getting a bit tired, to be honest. It is. Lynn, do you want to join in? Yeah, because I, I think, look, you know, putting aside all of that, and we know the history of the political parties in, in Ireland, and most of them have a violent past, but, like, for me, what's really offensive about Hugh's article is the approach, because... Like Mary Lou is a very accomplished politician. I mean, she's yeah. a female politician. She led us into the most successful election ever. And for him to turn around and go, did you get clearance to do this yeah. interview? Yeah. Do you know I mean, you just know that he wouldn't have asked a male leader such a stupid question. Do you know what I mean? And it's, I just find that really offensive. Um, but yeah, look, for me, what the most annoying part about it is, and this is what was happening on the doors in the elections, people who are struggling to pay their rent, people who are facing do you know I mean, issues in their jobs and not earning enough money and all of those issues in the healthcare, were turning around to us and going, we don't care. We don't care anymore. What we want is a government that's actually going to look after people. Do you know I mean, that's going to stand up and fight for us. And that's why I just don't understand the media and why they're continuing with this approach because they're the ones who are telling us that they're desperate to save the industry and yet they're pr producing content that nobody actually cares about or very small percentage of the population the establishment cares about whereas the general public are going no i want to hear what mary lou mcdonald is going to do in a post-pandemic scenario if she got into government i mean that for me is what i would have been buying the, the sunday independent i want to hear what Sinn Féin's proposals um, to get us out of this crisis, not about why she joined the party and what school she went to. But, but I think this is a tactic that goes a long way back where instead of discussing policies and what the principles of the party and what, you know, what it's looking for in terms of healthcare, housing, education, um, they like to distract by pointing over there at the past or pointing at maybe, you know, unelected people in the back of the party who've been making decisions behind people's backs. You know, as you say, I don't think they would have asked Jerry Adams, did he have permission yeah. to, to make such statements? So, um, we, I mean, it was one of the reasons for the whole right to change uh, campaign was to stop that nonsense about personalities, individuals, and start thinking about policies and what impacted on people. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, I think we're all in agreement that, that I don't think it's gonna change anytime soon, in the Sunday Independent, I think they're, they're, they're never going to focus on the policies because Sinn Féin's policies are very popular, um, the existing ones. And it, it, it says it in it, you know, 
uh, Mary Lou attacks the plagiarism and theft of Sinn Féin's policies now by Fine Gael and Fine Gael, which is exactly what's happening. All this, you know, public ownership and decent jobs and healthcare and housing and all that. They, they, they say the right things, those parties, but they don't actually implement the policies that they're, they're talking about. That might be the problem, Dave. <laughs> you might have a party that would actually deliver on those particular policies. Now, I don't know the jury would be out on that. But and there was two interesting little anecdotes that I found from the interview, which I would um, sort of, I found interesting. One, I didn't realize that Mary Lou MacDonald was enrolled in a PhD in DCU for industrial relations. Um, and let me tell you, if she had done industrial relations, got that PhD and come into the trade union movement, she would have been a, one hell of a negotiator. The other bit was the fact that when she did contract COVID-19 or the symptoms of it, um, one of the party leaders, notably Leo Fraga, didn't make any contact to wish her all the best, which I find very interesting, you know, but it maybe <laughs> it's a sign of the relationships and what they think. <laughs> So Stevie, just um, to move on away from the Sunday Independent, what were you reviewing this week? Well, I went into my papers this morning and every single headline was about the, the comings and goings of Dominic Cummings. Um, you see what I did there? Excellent, Stevie. Every headline was about that because uh, whilst everyone else has been struggling with lockdown and trying to abide by, you know, abide by the rules and all the rest of it, he's just been living his best life. He's been dandering around having the crack back dancing amongst the bluebells, visiting people, going on holiday, uh, and he's been caught out. What was, what was interesting, I suppose, is the reaction from the cabinet. There was, a, there was a huge rush to defend him yesterday by every single member of the cabinet. Um, so it's quite clear that he must know where the metaphorical bodies are all buried because he has incredible support from the Tory party. I mean, anyone else would be gone by now. I think someone broke ranks this morning, Grant Chaps, who's the housing minister, yeah. has asked him to go. But it's quite clear that Boris Johnson relies on him for whatever reason, you know, he's, um, but that's not really the real story about Donald Trump, but it's why that is kind of a sideline, because the real story is the fact that he's the architect of the herd immunity policy, which has led to the deaths of uh, Office of National Statistics, as reckons it's about 50,000 plus now, people dead in Britain. That's the real story, of course, and he's the kind of, well, I keep referring to him as some sort of Machiavellian figure. He's more like fucking Rasputin, a mad monk in the background, you know, um, crazy and with crazy policy. So, uh, Although it does, the pressure does seem to be increasing on Boris Johnson to get rid of him, but I imagine he might, he might hang on in there, you know. Yeah. And, and Kieran, what have you been looking at there? Uh, well, to be fair, I've, you know, I've been looking at a number of stories. I've been trying to pick up maybe stories with a bit of a local flavour here in Donegal. Um, but the one that really I, I sort of was impressed about was in the Irish Times, I think it was um, yesterday, Dave. And it was from... Samuel McConkey, who has been on the TV, and he talks about a post-COVID economy and how it provides opportunities. And, you know, he's looking at what were the problems in terms of how we had to deal with um, the pandemic. And um, he says therein lies some of the opportunities, like the fact, you know, protective clothing, um, gels, all of that type of stuff. And interestingly, he says that it should be nationally financed. In other words, he's talking about having sort of state-owned enterprises um, whereby we actually prepare for what obviously will be coming down the line in, in terms of future pandemics unless, you know, we start to address some of the environmental issues and the consumerist um, problems that we have in this this planet. But I find that very interesting that there, you know, there are people out there who are trying to push that narrative. Now, the Sunday Indo today had in their editorials some sort of a 
uh, discussion around we cannot impose austerity like we did the post 2008 and, and further on um which but never came up with any concrete anything concrete in terms of what that would look like but you know it's important that people you know you sort of get that narrative out there with a view to we're not going back to what we the way we had or what we had and the way we lived um, and I think that's very important so I was impressed the fact that this man Samuel McConkie who's been on our TV screens in terms of how the pandemic's been addressed in Ireland is actually coming out with something I would argue is very positive. Well I mean that, that leads us on to uh, what I want to ask Ollie about but I'll go to Lynn first just in terms of um, the, the potential for austerity uh, government formation talks um, where we're, we're getting or are we edging closer to a Fianna Fáil and a Gael Green coalition with support of some of those um, independents? Um, I, I won't use any, any any specific words to describe them, but where are we with the government formation talks at the moment? Yeah, uh, can I just come in though as well, because there was an interesting article in the Sunday Business Post by Aidan Regan around the this not going back to austerity and like the that the eu you know that bastion of socialism even they <laughs> were saying jump into ireland that you need to invest more That's right. in your public infrastructure in your health care um germane and in in sustainable transport so like when you have the eu even flagging to the the government that you are like look you're failing and do you mean it so i think that's quite interesting that even they're taking that approach but look when it comes to, to government formation we know that a government with Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and the Greens and if there's a number of the independents which are being flagged in the paper Verona Murphy, Michael Lowry, uh, Noel Grealish like a government made up of, of that combination is not the government of that the electorate voted for because whether the electorate voted for Sinn Féin for the Greens for the SOC Dems a very clear message that they were giving on the day was that they didn't want the same policies they didn't want the same Fine Gael government they wanted a government of change and for me what's really interesting about the, the kind of the, the narrative at the moment in the, the newspapers is that they're really trying to heap the pressure on the Greens so they're not talking about the, the policy of exclusion of Sinn Féin. You know, the, if they were doing their job properly, they should be saying, we don't have a government, we're 100 days into talks, we don't have a government, because Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael refuse to talk to Sinn Féin, and are excluding them. And instead, what you're getting is that the Greens need to step up to the plate in the case of national interest, suck up whatever is going to be put forward to them and just get on with it. Um, do you know what I mean? And how dare they have a, a leadership election, which is actually part of their constitution within six months. So I think that is really interesting that I'm sure if you did a Venn diagram of the journalists who are now keeping the pressure on the Greens are the same journalists. It would be a perfect circle of those who are in complete meltdown uh, post-election. Um, so for me, I think that's a re really interesting when you're looking at who's, who's, who are the people who are heaping the pressure on, on the Greens and why are they doing it? And I believe they're doing it because they know that if the Greens walk away, then the chances of a Sinn Féin government uh, are back on the table. Stevie? Yeah, the, it's interesting to find out or to hear the rumours coming out from the Green Party membership as well. I know the Green Party in the North are kind of livid about the, very, the prospect that they'll go into government with Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, and um, I don't know what the percentages are in terms of the membership split between the six counties and the 26, but um, I don't, you know, the, and I know the vote has to take place in the membership once they come up with the deal, so that be, that's really interesting to see whether they'll be allowed to go into government by their own membership. 
I've got a feeling the membership's drifting to the left. I know lots of people in the north who have, I suppose, they're looking for a home, for a political home, particularly from the Protestant unionist community, and they've you know, lots of young kind of radical lefties, and they've all migrated towards the Green Party. Uh, so there's a shift of balance of power inside inside the Greens as well. I was talking to Professor John Barry last week on a podcast, and he's a former Green Councillor. He says that they're, they're going to fight the bit out to make mm. sure that it doesn't happen, you know. So um, you can only hope that the left wing, such as it is of the Green Party, win that debate. Well, well, I think it's interesting in Owen Harris's lovely article today as well, how he refers to the left of the Green Party, as, it, as he refers to it here. As, he says, Catherine Martin has a crucial role to play in convincing the Green trots that going into opposition will anger those who loan them votes on the basis of going into government. There's this assumption by Establishment Ireland that they know why people vote for specific parties. I mean, he doesn't refer to the vote left, you know, transfer left pact that was um, the unofficial pact that was on on the likes of Twitter. But um, and, and that seems to go through all of the newspapers that I've read today, number of articles, contributions, Lucinda Creighton, you mentioned there um, earlier on, Lynn. All of these guys are, are panicking because if we don't get that, what they refer to as a stable government to implement austerity, there's a, a likelihood that business owners, the wealthy, um, people who can actually pay a little bit more of tax might have to pay that little bit more. Um, and they do also fear another election. First of all, how can we have an election is mm. one question. But if there is another election, it shows that, you know, from, from the last election, Sinn Féin could run extra candidates and may end up getting the numbers to form a, le- a proper left-wing government. Uh, no, no, I think you're, you're spot on. Look, nobody wants another election right now. Do you know what I mean? I, I don't even know how you could possibly run one. It was interesting last weekend, that spot, you know, I think it was a Shane Beatty, the journalist who said mum and dad are fighting again, you know, about Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, uh, and the, the fact that Owen Murphy for once probably did something right, which was actually just look at what, <laughs> what would have to happen to have an election. Um, but I think, look, the, the public will not thank any politician who is responsible for another election right now, do you know what I mean? When they're all dealing with, in, you know, debt issues, do you know what I mean? The issues that they're, that they're facing, their businesses are going to the wall and that you can't, the politicians can't literally be, like, get around the table and form a government. Um, and I think that's why you're seeing this pressure being heaped on the Greens because for the establishment, they want no change. They want the status quo. And what's the best option of that is Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and the Greens going in and doing what they did previously in government. Um, so I think that that's, I hope that the Greens um, are able to resist the pressure. And I hope you're right, Stefan, that, you know, that the, the Northern Greens, which is an, an element that's often forgotten about mm. in the South commentary, do you know what I mean? That the Greens are an All-Ireland party. Um, and they are a home for those people who feel like they didn't you know, fit into the kind of the normal breakdown of politics in the north. Um, but look, I, I think we, we continue to talk to the to the different parties. We continue to, to argue that we want that, that program for change. Um, do you know I mean the universal health care? The, the proper rent controls, do you know I mean the, those issues that deal with what people were telling us on the doors that they wanted to look after uh, in a future government. Um, but it is it is interesting to see the, the circling of the wagons to try and, and heat that pressure on the Greens. But I don't think it's a done deal at all because getting it through two thirds of their membership um, and a lot of their membership have come on board in recent years. So they are uh, a not saying this in any way derogatory which a lot of the commentators are that they're young and naive it's that no they're the ones who are who feeling the brunt of i mean they know they're facing climate change i mean they're the the generation but also they're the ones that are locked out of 
sustainable work and uh, proper accommodation and they joined the Green Party. So, yeah, I don't think it's guaranteed that you get that government. Steve, have you got any stories there for us? Uh, well, well the, the big story in the, in the Times is a part of the, the one beneath the headline of Dominic Cummings is actually the, the Times and some of the other papers in over the water and here have started to turn against the Tory party, which is interesting. Um, there's a big double spread. I don't know if it's in the free state version of the Times about the nine day gap between when the government made a decision to uh, have a lockdown and then that's when they instigated the lockdown and the, the spread of the virus in, in, in Britain went from 200,000 to 1.5 million in those nine days. And it was that resistance of the British state because they're being led by Cummings and that herd immunity policy um, and their real resistance to, you know, for state intervention, for want of a, a better phrase. Um, and that led to the to the mass spread of the disease across the country now. So it's uh, and there's still about three or four hundred people a day dying in Britain. Of course, that had a massive impact then in Scotland. I mean, she's played a better game, Nicola Sturgeon, but they made the same mistakes that England made in terms of delaying the lockdown. And that had a knock on effect in the north as well, because the north slightly delayed it longer than it did, too. Um, so though that that decision the British government made is now being spoken about because you can't hide sixty thousand dead people. I mean that's a tough one to bury even in the national press, you know. So and that's going to have a big effect, I think, big impact because um, I mean that's an awful lot of funerals. That's an awful lot of dead, you know families suffering grief. So um, that's going to be the story I think over the next couple of months. You know how badly they fucked this up. Hmm. And it, it's interesting that in the south the the perception is that we. We did everything right. Yes, we were a little bit ahead of the UK and other countries around some, some countries around Europe in terms of the, the what's called the lockdown. But we didn't actually implement some of the, 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 the New Zealand style lockdown things of asking people when they were arriving in through the airports where they were going, what they were doing. They're only talking about doing that now, incredibly now, whatever nearly three months into the the, the the pandemic but what what i find really interesting from page of the sindo again today brendan o'connor's ar article um and also inside in own harris's um article is that they're really calling for the whole economy to be opened up again own harris goes as far as to say the lockdown should be lifted for the sake of working women as if his greatest concern has always been uh, hairdressers, as he, he referred to them here, who are being locked out of employment because of, of this, as if it's not that he just wants the economy to open up to protect big business and um, the wealthy, the elites, it's costing a lot of money. Um, but Brendan O'Connor's article is in incredible. It's, it, it's, it's talking about how, you know, we're, we're basically the best country in the world uh, in terms of what we've done during this pandemic. Welcome to Ireland, the safest little country in the world in which not to catch coronavirus he opens up with. Uh, you may have lost your job and your sanity and your future, but the chances of you getting the virus in the community are now virtually zero. I mean, we, we're in the top 10, I believe, of, of deaths um, per capita in, in, in the world. And he's talking about this as if it hasn't happened. But the whole thing is, and it's, again, it's, it's, it's through all of the newspapers. It's about let's open up the economy. Let's stop this. And, and nobody has ever asking for the position of workers. You know, this is a health mm. and safety um, concern for workers. We, we represent workers, obviously, in, in the unions that we're involved in. And they're being asked to go back to work and risk their lives. Um, I, I was contacted by a couple of journalists during the week about workers in Lidl dying from coronavirus, picking it up in, in stores. And we mentioned it last week, 9% of the members that we surveyed are working in supermarkets where 
uh, a colleague was infected with coronavirus. I mean, and, and these people are insulting the, the, those people, their health, their family. And it's not as if, you know, hairdressers can go to work. And I, I think my brother sent me on, because my sister's a hairdresser. My brother sent me on an article yesterday saying 92 people were infected in the United States um, by one hairdresser who caught the virus because they, yeah. their economy remained open. And this is, these are the very people that own Harris is saying, open up the economy to again, let the, those guys go to work. Um, all it takes is one person to have the, the, the contracted the disease and then it's spread to a huge amount of other people. Uh, any comments on opening up the economy? What's Sinn Féin's position on this, Lynn? Yeah, I mean, look, I think on these issues, it is definitely the, the case that you need to follow the health advice. And of course, you know, people say that has to be balanced with other interests. But I think, look, you know, anybody saying we need to reopen the economy and get it back up and running, you go first. <laughs> because these are people who were able to maybe, like Brendan O'Connor, they're able to work from home or they're in studios that are being sterilized. I mean, nobody, other guests aren't coming in. They change the microphones. So it's very easy to say from the comfort of a protected studio, that we need to reopen the economy when they're not the one going in and being front line and touching people's heads and washing their hair, do you know what I mean? Or, or serving in shops and that. And I think that's what this pandemic has really exposed is who are the important workers? Who are the workers that actually keep the country going? Um, and they're the low, invariably the low paid workers, do you know what I mean? The shop, those who are working the front line in retail, those who are going in and caring for our loved ones in nursing homes. I mean, they're the, they're the people who are on the front line and are generally low paid uh, workers. So I think, look, yeah, you follow the health advice, um, but it is rich for people who are in very privileged positions to be telling us to open, reopen the economy um, when they're not going to be the ones that are going to be impacted. Yeah, I'm going to come to Stevie in a second now just about that, but I think it's important that I read this out. It's a paragraph, just one small paragraph from Owen Harris's piece, right? just to show you how insulting it is. The government is now a victim of its policy of be afraid, be very afraid, with no good reason. Two weeks ago, we got some hard figures based on 1,429 deaths. Only six people under the age of 44 died, which is 0.4%. In short, the working population, especially those under 45, are not really at risk. So those 1,429 people who died, they're not important because they were over the age of 45. It's incredible stuff. Stevie? No, it's a level of sort of sociopathic behaviour. You, you rarely see that it reveals the true nature of so many people in the system they support because they generally don't care that people are going to die um, if we go back too soon after lockdown. I mean, in, in Britain and by extension, the six counties, there's huge pressure to release the lockdown and for people to get back to work. And there's an article this morning in the Sunday Times by Luke Johnson, who's a well-known kind of right-wing entrepreneur and writer and writes in lots of magazines. And he, he says that we have to break out of this semi-permanent lockdown socialism. That's what he refers to it as, you know. And he says that people are now too used to receiving government goodies, you know, the furlough money or the payments and the rates holidays and the various loans. And it reflects exactly, you sent me a thing yesterday, Dave, that I can't remember her name now, Fina Foyler on the radio. It, re it reflects that kind of sociopathic, uh, almost hatred these people have for working people. You know, they think that we need to be disciplined and sent back to work and that we're kind of indolent, lazy scum just living off government handouts, you know. And what was a woman's name yesterday, Dave? She, she had a very similar point of view. Oh, Anne Rabbit. Anne Rabbit. What did, she, what did she say? Something similar, wasn't it? Yeah, Anne Rabbit said... Um that the COVID payment of 350 euros was too high and it needed to be cut back as soon as possible when, you, when she was pushed on it. She said there's a hell of a lot of people who are much better, are, are, 
are far better off on 350 euros than they were when they were at work. Now, I don't know who she's been talking to in terms of earning below 350 euros at work, because if somebody's at work full time, they should be earning at least 350 euros based on our, the, the minimum wage. She might be talking on part time workers um, who, who might earn a little bit less than that, not a huge amount less than that. But it's that arrogance again. She's a TD on 90,000 euros telling people on 350 euros a week that you're on too much when in Dublin the rent is 471 euros per week on average. So, you know, the COVID payment doesn't even cover your week, weekly rent. So then you've no money left over. You're actually minus 121 euros in when you go out to the shop to, to buy your food to keep you going. So it, it's this disconnect. Um, that some politicians have and some certain political parties and rabbits Fianna Fall, And that's what's worrying, I suppose. Government formation talks involving these people, these people coming into government in the next couple of weeks. So, um, Lynn, you had a point to make there, did you? Me, was it? Yeah. Yeah, no, it was just, a, I don't know if anyone heard the Ivan Yates interview on the reopening of the, the schools. So Ivan using it as a, an excuse to, to beat up on trade unions again and that the teachers... Um, you know, are the ones who are responsible for resisting this when all the other countries are reopening their primary schools. And he had brought on um, a Danish teacher, but also a trade unionist, to make the case. I suppose what he had hoped was that it would show, look, Denmark, country similar size, they're, they're reopening. But it kind of really backfired on him because one issue is that those countries who have reopened have seen spikes in their, their cases. So in, in France, you've had a 77 new cases of COVID. But what was really interesting was that, you know, he was saying to the, the trade unionists in Dublin, you know, that our, our, our rating is lower than in Denmark and we should be back in. And of course, the Danish uh, teacher came straight away and was like, yeah, but our classes are smaller. <laughs> we yeah. have much smaller class sizes, um, which are not pointing out here in the case in Ireland, but also that we have our primary schools and secondary schools are on the same premises. So we have the space. So we're availing of secondary school spaces to, to divide it out. So, I mean, it was just one of those where it completely backfired on Ivan, where he was trying to have this go as that it was the unions who were stopping us going back to school. Now, I don't have children myself, but anyone I've spoken to are not comfortable about sending their kids back to school just yet so i don't know where this this push is coming from um because most are saying no like you send your kids in how do you separate young children you know and these pictures of chalk boxes where a child sits and plays do you mean like what sort of psychological impact that would have on kids but i just i thought it was really interesting to see ivan kind of end up with with egg on his face i'm going to come to kieran in a second but my my, just seeing as i have family over in sweden where the 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 kids my nephew and my niece are still going to school and my brother and his partner are both still at work Um, and then there's a headline here today in the um, sunday business post or the business post is called now sweden records highest death toll as a content that's the headline i mean again conveniently ignoring all of this bits these pieces of evidence that show that if you open the schools up again if you open the businesses up again this is what happens it's not an accident that sweden has the highest death rate and it's it's the fact that they've refused to have a lockdown so i mean we'll we'll see what the figures are at the end of the whole pandemic but sweden sweden is no example to be going by uh, for ivan yates or for anybody else kieran have you got any other stories there not really but i've been listening with interest to some of the contributions there and (coughs) whilst we're living in this um, pandemic environment and you're hearing all of these journalists trundle out this particular 
story about opening up the economy. I cannot but sort of feel and taste the fear of why they're writing. They know they're under threat, that the economy's under threat. They know that people are probably of a view, you know, how we live and, and how we behave needs to be looked at and examined. Um, and I, over the, I, I actually would love somebody in the media to maybe take on um, a, a storyline around, let's look at the countries that have done well in terms of battling in the pandemic. Like I was reading in Al Jazeera News, a column um, about uh, the, the state Kerala in India, mm. which is under communist rule. Mm. Um, and it's a very much a socialist state. And they haven't had one death and they have something like 650 um, cases. And this is in a population of 34 to 35 million people. And when he, the, the governor of that state explained how they approached this pandemic, um, it begs serious questions. And I know Ireland, and relatively speaking, has done reasonably well, but it begs serious questions of their approach about how they invest in things like health, education, how they have um, a position whereby when they brought in a lockdown that it was immediate because the people were educated as to the reasons why and it was properly policed. Um, now, whilst I can understand that Ireland has probably, you know, in free world economy terms is maybe at the top of the pile in terms of how it's dealt with the pandemic. But, you know, you look at the likes of Cuba and they were sending doctors into the epicenters in Europe off this um, serious pandemic, the likes of Italy, um, where the European Union was fighting about whether they would give um, um, the likes of Italy any sort of um, help or money or whatever it was in respect of PPE. But the likes of Cuba were flying in their doctors. Now you have in Brazil, where Bolsonaro was basically likened this to a little flu, a bit along the lines of Trump, and, um, who we know he gets on very well with. But in <clears throat> Bolsonaro now, where they actually got rid of Cuban doctors, are now looking them back in because they are not able to cope with the pressures of this pandemic. And I think somebody, the, the silence in the media about certain countries and how they are able to cope with this better than others, by dint of how they look um, at how they run a country, um, is, is, is pretty damn shameful on the media. Well, it's, it's, it's fairly simple, though, Kieran, isn't it? It's down to ideology. Yeah. I mean, it's not a yep. surprise you have Trump, um, Bolsonaro, and Boris Johnson, three radical freedmanites, radical free marketeers. They surrounded their cabinet, and Bolsonaro has pulled in, um, like, the Von Mises Institute in the, in the Brasilia, which is a kind of far-right think tank. So he surrounded himself now with radical free marketeers, as Boris Johnson has done in his cabinet, and their approach to the economy and to society is not to intervene or to intervene on behalf of capital, but don't intervene on behalf of the people. So it's no surprise that those efforts, those will have the three highest death, death tolls in the, in the world, three radical right-wing governments. But you can look close at the home care as well, even Greece. Greece have only had about 200 deaths. That's right. And Greece, is, and Greece is, that's after 12 years of devastating austerity. They've had their health system ripped to pieces and they kind of knew that, which is why they had a proper lockdown early on and they've stopped the spread of the, and that's from a fairly right-wing government as well in Greece. It wasn't, you know, it's not so recent government. So um, as, as you said, as the figures become more clear and as people begin to compare responses, Ireland won't come out of it looking too good and the UK will, look, will, will probably come out of it the worst, you know. Yeah. But it's entirely predictable because yeah. of the politics of those governments. 
just, just I, I sort of touched on it last week uh, around this coming out of it element, Kieran. Just as you're a trade union official, and I know you're um, a trade union official in the south. But in, ter- in terms of workers going back to work, I mean, if there's risks that your employer is putting you at, what what are your rights there? Well, I think it is Section 12 of the Health and Safety at Workplace Act. Um, I believe it's 2005. Um, and that, that provides for a worker who feels if their health and safety is compromised or at risk that they can remove themselves from that part of the workplace. And that is a directive that we've issued to retail workers that are maybe in busy shops and they're stacking shelves in the aisles. And if the aisles become um, too busy that, you know, we would tell them, listen, step outside the aisle, move yourself out of that. You don't need to endure that type of stress and anxiety about you know, people all around you. And in the main, that tends to be operating. And it does, where we have unionized employment, um, tends to be operating with, you know, and, and juncture and, 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 and with the, the permission of the management. Um, now, as I said in our last podcast, look, it's all well and good opening up the economy on a gradual basis, but over time, things will slacken off. And I've actually witnessed that myself, even about as I go about my daily business, um, where people are not even entering the shops and, uh, you know, sanitizing their hands or putting gloves on. You know, I've sat outside a shop when my wife went in to do some shopping. 17 people went into that shop. Five went through the sanitizing process, mm-hmm. one of which, one of whom was my wife. Now, if that's happening in a local shop in Donegal, in a small village in Donegal, God knows what else is happening out there. Um, and I actually believe as we move on um, and they start to open up the drapery shops, whilst they'll have in place all of these guidelines in terms of trying to protect workers and customers, it will slacken off. Mm. You know? Lynn, I'll go to you. I don't know if you want to comment on that or whether you have any other stories there that you want to talk about. Um, no, well, just on that, I think, like, well, I'd noticed, and I didn't st- stray out of Clondalkin Village, but you did notice different shops were more prepared or certainly looked after their staff wow. better. Do you know what I mean? They had it very much more organised. And at the start of the sort of the lockdown, that's what made me decide which shop I was going to continue to go to. Do you know what I mean? Because you were looking and going, actually, I feel safer. Not, so not only is it that the workers are, are obviously being protected by their employer, but also as a member of the public then, I as a knock-on feel safer than that but i i agree that there's definitely been a complacency setting in among the public um i think part of that is around the commentary of how how we've handled it and that we're now you know it's like underlying health issues is like known to the Gardaí. It's that phrase, like caveats. Do you know what I mean? That you suddenly kind of go, ah, oh, well, sure, look, they were sick. Then underlying health conditions is diabetes. Do you mean it's asthma? Yeah. It's things that people live <laughs> very fulfilled, long lives with yeah. and their lives are being cut short because of this virus. So I do think that, that certainly led to a complacency in your mind of going, oh, I'm okay, so, because I'm not one of them or I'm not in a nursing home. I mean, so I think that that sort of narrative that was put out there that hasn't helped the, the problem. But then I suppose, look, public nature is also that you, yeah, you let your guard down. Um, but I would be very concerned yes. around the, 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 the phasing out of the lockdown. From what I've seen just in phase one is there's definitely a complacency is set in. But it, it now comes down to economic power as well. When you read some of the articles, I mean, Hugh O'Connell, again, in the Sunday Independent today, 
headline, pubs, restaurants and, and schools could apply one metre rule. Mm. And the second paragraph of that reads, ministers will examine whether the current two metre social distancing rule could be relaxed for certain sectors where it would be difficult to apply. As if, like, you know, the disease is going to go, virus. all right, we're in a pub now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, shorten my, my ban or whatever. It, it's crazy. And, and can, can I just come in on that? Because I, I, I went in to collect, because a lot of the restaurants now are doing takeaway. And one of the things, so what, it was Poolbeg Street. And you're looking and going, what the government needs to be doing is giving more street space to restaurants. So rather than relaxing the two meter rule, let's actually reinvent the city and give people those extra yeah. spaces. And I know people will say, well, look, it's Ireland. We don't always have a great uh, weather or climate. But like other countries we know that have similar climates to ourselves have more outdoor space. So I think that that's something that that would be more innovative than trying to, to put pressure to relax what are public health rules. Let's look at how can we support those small businesses so that they can open, but open safely for both their employees and for the public. It would be remiss of me at this point not to uh, mention that Lynn was the one that raised restaurants and restaurant space. Um, there's nothing in the papers today that I can see about what you're having for dinner later on. Um, are you having oysters or pigs' balls or what, what's, what's for dinner later? We are actually having fish. <laughs> I apologise, sir. Having, I apologise, Go I ahead, apologize to all the vegans, all the vegans out there. I'm currently eating a sausage sandwich. Lovely, by the way. <laughs> Lynn has had a, a history of being reported on in the Sunday papers, whether she's having a coffee or whether her and her, her partner own a brain are, are cooking oysters or fish. And there's even badges, isn't there? You showed us earlier on. There is, yeah. The let them eat hake, although hake is not sustainable. So <laughs> just to say that. <laughs> right. um, um, I, I just I, I think I think that though that that are well look there's been a history the the Shinner dinners hashtag has been going for for a couple of years now but uh, I think the article particularly around uh, the Sunday Times last was it last week or the week two weeks ago um, it's just look it just shows you it's kind of like about the class element that's there alive and well in in the Irish establishments that how dare people eat good food. Do you know what I mean? You can't have good food and stand up for workers' rights or believe in social justice. Do you know what I mean? You have to be eating gruel and, uh, and knowing your place in society. So, I mean, rather than like what the whole point of, of tweeting about that was that this is a guy who has a restaurant in Dublin. He's now shifted to try and, you know, keep his business alive. He's, it's sustainable fishing. It's small boats. I mean, all of the product, and you're trying to support them rather than sort of big multinationals who'd be okay. It's like getting the message out there that, you know, support these businesses um, during the pandemic. And instead, you get the, the Sunday Times deciding that it's, a, it's an opportunity to kick the, um, the class traitor that is Ono Brin. Well, uh, <laughs> my, my mentor was a man called Joe Loy, he was a communist in the Shankill Road. And whenever he sat down with a glass of brandy in one hand and a cigar in the other, he would just shout at anyone who who is listening, there's nothing too good for the working class. And <laughs> 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 oysters. Right. Well, moving on, because we did say we were going to talk about media diversity in Ireland. Um, Lynn, you produced a report in 2016 for the EU uh, about Ireland's diversity or lack of diversity in the, in the media landscape. We've seen a huge amount of podcasts opening up all across the island of Ireland. 
um, addressing different issues. Stevie has one there, trademark Belfast, if people want to listen to it as well. Um, and, and I think that's those podcasts are reflective of the, the, the desire from the Irish public to hear something different because we do tend to hear the same thing over and over again. Can you tell us a little bit, though, about that report from 2016? Yeah, so I suppose just as a bit of background, the EU funds um, a, a body of research work in all of the member states about the media plurality. So in 2015, a report came, one of the first report in Ireland came out, and it was carried out by a DCU academic, um, Dr. Roderick Flynn, and that found concerns around media ownership in Ireland. And so it was on the back of that that then I put forward the case to get funding to look at it uh, in more detail because one of the arguments and we know all about the arguments of property rights when it came to you know rent controls and things like that in Ireland but the property rights was used as a way of saying that you couldn't um, divest uh, Dennis O'Brien of his share of the media because he has a significant share and what had happened um, under the the labour government um, was that not only so they, they, they put in place a, a, a bar for a percentage of media ownership but in the manner in which it was designed they actually solidified Dennis O'Brien's holdings because they didn't say to Dennis O'Brien he had to divest so they set the, the percentage mm -hmm. of ownership lower than what Dennis O'Brien had which meant that they effectively meant that nobody could ever challenge him or reach the same percentage of ownership so it was really flawed but they argued that they couldn't uh, deal with that because of the property rights they couldn't address the fact that he had this big share in both print media and um, radio content uh, so what I had done was got uh, lawyers to then look at that and to assess whether or not constitutionally you could divest Dennis O'Brien of, of shares um, and they found that while yeah it's tricky because it is property rights if it's in the greater common good, it could be done. It just needed political backbone to, to take it on. And, um, you know, and they also found that he had a chilling effect because he's quite litigious as well. So you have the problem of just the fact that it's a lack of diversity and then the fact that he is a particularly litigious person. So, um, so that was what the report found. Now, I'd like to think that that then led to the fact that uh, Dennis O'Brien failed to acquire other local newspapers at the time. So there, were, there was a, in the pipeline, there was um, a deal going on of, of him uh, buying more regional newspapers. And that deal actually ended up falling apart um, because this report sort of did flag up the issues. Now, he has left the print media stage at this point, but he still has a significant uh, control of Communicore. So your news talks and Today FM and that. Um, but... So that was my report, but just interestingly, if I can touch on this as well, one of the, the findings of Roderick Flynn's reports, because he's done it now each year on, on Ireland, and it was flagged recently that government and public bodies should look at advertising in newspapers during this crisis to help them kind of keep their revenue, because we know ad revenue has collapsed. Now, what Roderick Flynn had pointed out before the pandemic was that in Ireland there's no transparency about how public bodies or, or departments actually go and tender for, like how do they make the decision, which newspaper are we going to take an advert out in? And he said while it is clear that some of it is to do with readership, there's other uh, elements at play is the wording he used. He used quite, you know, uh, like a vague wording obviously to protect himself. 
um, so, you, so you have this issue where we've seen with the special communications unit, the advertorials and all of that issue that, you know, the government denied and Ellen Coyne, in fairness to her, the journalist, kind of kept digging at it. Um, but yeah, so there, there's big issues in Ireland around the media and, uh, and the government and, and just the whole interplay. So it just the whole thing needs to be reformed. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, it's called the establishment for a reason, isn't it? You know, political power, media power the power of the, of the markets of the city of London. I mean, it's no better in Britain. I think in Britain they say that five billionaires control 80% of the entire UK media. You have obviously Murdoch, Richard Desmond with the Express, Viscount Rothermere, owner of the Mail, and then the Barclay Brothers uh, with uh, the Telegraph. And I mean, those are, they, they control, and that, that includes local regional newspapers, local regional radio stations. So that level of private ownership of the, you know, it's not a free press when one person owns it all. Mm. <laughs> and then, then of course that creates what they want which is that kind of hegemonic control over discourse so when you come in with an alternative point of view or alternative policy or an analysis they just make you sound mad because you're you're so far out of the otherton window of what's acceptable in political debates that uh, you, and, and that's and that's that's what they get to do they get to set what's permissible in political debate and that's really dangerous to any semblance of democracy yeah, I, I remember um when i worked in australia some of the the guys i worked with explained it to me that rupert murdoch he, who owns the only national newspaper over there called the australian and um, he used to publish the profits up until about 2003 and then he ceased publishing the profits because there were no profits to publish but he wanted to hold on to that paper because of how powerful it was at influencing the national agenda so he, he he's there as one of the wealthiest men on the, on the planet funding um, a newspaper that's making a loss every year so that he can control what happens in the political arena. So we know that that, that happens very clearly across the island of Ireland as well as across mm. the rest of Europe. Uh, and just have a comment on that, and, and there was a decision made only in the last week that newspapers won't publish their circulation figures anymore because they believe it's feeding into a narrative of a declining uh, newspapers so it's so they're not there was an ABC I think it's called um, which every year would produce the figures so initially independent pulled out of giving their figures over and now uh, last week I think most of the, the newspapers have said now they're not going to disclose those figures anymore I think like look we I believe in 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 the, the, the in media I believe in supporting journalists and investigative journalism but it's very important how you go about supporting it. So advertising in them is not the way because if you're taking out advertising, then it's in the interests of the newspaper to not attack you. Um, I think there are countries that are doing it and doing it really well. Like Croatia uses its lottery fund. It uses a percentage of that. Um, Belgium, uh, they, give, they have grants for investigative journalists who are looking at stories that cover two jurisdictions or more. Um, so there's just, there's models there where you could have the journalists go and apply for the funding. Like, I think Newsworthy are doing that anyway. They put a story up and you decide whether or not you want to fund it. But you could do that on a more organised system where it's state funding, but that you have no say over a separate body then decides how to administer um, that grant and that it has to be for investigative journalism. Because I think at the time as well, Dennis Nocton floated the idea uh, that we would use some of the licence fee and divert that and give money to, to newspapers so that they can survive. Now, unless you're kind of saying to newspapers, well, look, this is what we want you to use the money for, but not telling them what stories to write. Well, who's to say that they're not going to use that money to just write about the Kardashians or, 
you mean the fluff story that they they think so i mean there has to be a system where you're investing in the investigative journalism that we need um while also maintaining the separation of, of power and i think you can look at other countries who are doing that quite successfully well, i think all four of us here would be in favor of something that could democratize the media so mm. as you mentioned there um, you know, far too often the media is sort of a, a, a dictating a position to to a large proportion of the population. What, what what I mentioned at the start about podcasts is people are starting to go, well, look, uh, what am I interested in? And in fact, it's the conversations that we had when we were establishing this podcast is, is there anybody reviewing the news from a left-wing perspective, talking about, you know, how these big stories impact on workers because we see it in the RTE news every day. They give us the currency rates. They give us the, the um, how the stock markets are doing. To your average retail worker, they couldn't give a shit about how the stock markets are doing. They are not invested in this and yet that's given a slot every single day in the same way that the Angelus is. It's almost a religion, um, the financial markets and you know what, what this podcast hopes to do in the future um, is to, to give you that sort of analysis from, from a worker's perspective about how, you know, I'm reading, reading an article today uh, about wind farms are generating too much energy across the island of Ireland. Like it, really good articles from good journalists, but they mm. seem to be hidden um, in, in the middle of newspapers rather than on the front page where on the front page we're getting these articles about how uh, workers all need to go back to work and risk their lives so that their wealthy bosses um, you know, don't have to. So, so this type of analysis is really important um, and hence we've launched this. Lads, have you got anything to contribute on that? Uh, well, yeah, the, the biggest story at the moment is how we're going to pay for the pandemic, how we're going to pay for the lockdown. It's like the dominant public discourse now is where's the money coming from? And that's really interesting how that debate's been framed by the mainstream media. I don't know about in the free state, but here and over the water, it's and the BBC's all over it. It's in, in all the main um, papers is that the government has to go and borrow billions now to pay for this, uh, when that's not true. And it's one of the biggest lies told in, in, in economics. The Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, the head of the Bank of England, admitted last week that they're going to directly finance government expenditure, which is what they do anyway through you know direct monetary finance. Um, even the deputy head of the European Central Bank this week pointed to the, the, the fact that they may have to engage in direct monetary finance, which is basically the central bank printing or creating brand new money from nothing. So there are, there are huge stories out there that aren't getting spoken to because the mainstream media is framing the debate in a certain way, or the only way we can actually pay for this is austerity 2.0. And that's, we're all being, we're all being prepped now for that, that there's no other, there's no other way out of this, you know? So that's something that we all have to talk about and get our head around at the moment is uh, there are other alternatives than just states going to money markets to borrow money. Now there's, there's two articles on, on the very same thing. I'm, I'm feeling mm. Groundhog Day-ish with um, 12 years ago where Eddie Hobbs is in the Sunday Independent, <laughs> yeah. I think, or maybe it's the Sunday Business Post, and he's talking about how you know, the private sector is, is driving everything in the economy and public sector workers have it easy. Mm. And it, also in the Sunday Business Post then there's Eddie Malloy, has, uh, who's a management consultant's headline, reads, public servants cannot expect pay restoration when so many others have lost their income. To be fair, the headline says pay restoration instead of pay increases, which is what most of the mainstream media have been portraying, these pay increases for nurses and, and everybody else. Uh, getting the pay that was deducted from them 10 years ago, restored to them now. Uh, and now there's the mainstream media telling everybody, look, these workers, they don't deserve an extra few quid in their pocket. What they deserve is a round of applause on a Thursday evening. Yeah. Um, any other stories there, lads, before I, I close up? Yeah, can I, can I address one? Um, it's probably of a local flavour. 
And I do know that it's a number of the local papers here have brought it up, um, and I think it's in a couple of the nationals. It's about the archaeological dig in Viola Deed, I think they, it's pronounced in Northwest Spain, for the remains of Red Hugh O'Donnell, um, who we would celebrate as one of um, the main sort of leaders of the Irish um, nationalism against um, the British oppressors. Um, and it is, it's looking very, very likely that they're maybe going to find that body. And interesting, and as a matter of anecdote, they will be able to determine if it's Red Hugh um, because two, his two big toes will be missing. Um, he lost them through frostbite um, when he was on the run. But just an interesting little story there. But I don't see the likes of Hugh O'Connell giving out about him. <laughs> he wants toe rest restoration, does he? <laughs> well, anyway, look, Dave, before we, before we finish, I want, just in case my mum is listening, I want to make sure that mum, it was Dave that said we have to get rid of the Angelus, not me, all right? <laughs> yeah. Dave, just before we it. go there, can I address something on a personal level um, and respect of what I said at the top of last week's podcast, which I have to say was a dummy run. Um, and just maybe we have our listeners there that I referenced um, that the workers' reps on the low pay commission maybe drew down huge expenses. I wasn't aware that they didn't draw down any of the expenses. And um, I would like to apologize for that. Um, I think it speaks volumes about the two reps that are on the low pay commission not drawing down those expenses. And I think it's an example that they should show the others and demonstrates the integrity of those two people as professionals um, and how they look at the low pay and the work that they have done in around that. Um, and I would like to think that maybe, I know um, that you offered that um, as a sort of a production, on a production basis in terms of the podcast, but you know, and I was refused, but I personally would like to just put that in there. It's not for me to impugn anybody's character. Okay, thanks, Kieran. Okay, well, listen, um, that, this has been the week of work, uh, episode one, technically. Uh, I've been your host, David Gibney. I want to thank my co host, Stefan Anulan and Kieran Campbell, but I, I want to send a, a very a huge thanks to Senator Lynn Boylan for coming on and talking about all of the issues today, especially the media diversity part, because as I said, it's one of the reasons we wanted to um, get a podcast like this up and running is, is to have that little bit of media diversity and a little bit of almost the watchdog watching the watchdog. Um, you know, <laughs> if the mainstream media is the watchdog, who's watching them? So listen, thanks again. Yep. Um, we'll be back next thank week you. with another episode. Um, and yeah, we'll talk through all of the stories again. Talk to you then. Mm-hmm.